0: Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslowitz-Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's has- hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are myself, Robert Port, and my partner, Craig Frankel, and today we're talking about financial and estate planning for young adults. So
1: now let's start and introduce our guests, and I'll start with my left, which means nothing to our listeners. Allison, tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, Craig. Thanks for the introduction. I'm Allison
2: McLeod with Atlanta Tax. I uh, manage taxes for people who care about their money.
1: And Chloe, tell us about yourself.
3: Yes, my name is Chloe Moore. I, work, I have a firm, Financial Staples, uh, based in Atlanta, but I serve clients nationwide, and I work with young professionals on comprehensive financial planning.
1: And Cherish, last but not least.
3: My name is
4: Cherish Dela Cruz. I have my own um, estate planning and business planning law firm, and I help young families and small businesses.
1: Okay, so we started off, and today's uh, topic talks about uh, estate planning for young adults. So I think the real first question for each of you is, what do you define as a young adult?
2: You're you're looking at me, correct? This is Allison. So, uh, young adult—anybody uh, younger than I am? Whatever my current age is. Um, you know, I I think probably fourteen. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, Mid thirties, younger.
1: Is that what you're looking at, Cherish?
4: Yes, generally, um, I would say twenty,
3: maybe twenty-five to thirty-four, for me.
0: Chloe, the same.
3: Yeah, i actually define young professionals as 30s and 40s.
0: Okay. Okay, so if, if that's the case, whatever the, the demographic is, why, why does financial planning and estate planning for that cohort matter? They're young. Uh, I, I still remember those days. You think you're never going to die. Your family knows what you want. You may be single. Why does it matter? Let's, let's start with you, Cherish.
4: For me um, working with younger clients i have seen what happens when people don't plan <clears throat> so um most recently um you know i, I have a, a client who's now a widow they were high income earners the uh, father was a breadwinner and he died unexpectedly he was very very young he was 32 years old had a two-year-old son and a young wife He was the breadwinner of the family, and now because nothing was put in place, he, his family, you know, is at a loss, and so it's a scavenger hunt. It's trying to figure out what the assets are, doing a guardianship and, I mean, a conservatorship for the financial assets. So, seeing what happens when people don't plan.
1: And, And I should mention, just for for our listeners, if you have a sudden death, that is the worst. That is the most difficult time for the survivors to think rationally you want them to use that time to grieve and take care of their loved ones and thinking about the numbers is really just difficult
0: and chloe uh, why why does financial planning matter however you describe financial planning for for that age cohort
3: yes i, I think financial planning is important uh, to start as early as possible and um, we we had a couple of discussions you know before before we started but um you know just thinking about as you're getting older and getting closer to retirement um, what would you have paid or what would you have you know, given up, given up to, to be able to do financial planning earlier and put yourself in a better position for retirement? Um, so a lot of people, you know, they just think that they're going to live forever, like you said, and, and that they're, you know, they're just, they have so much time on their hands um, to, to really think about planning later on. But the earlier you start, the better.
1: So ask your parents what they wish they did. Don't ask them what they did.
0: Right. And, right, and what what I've realized looking back is that time uh, is is on your side, particularly with financial planning and the value of accumulating money and let it compound over time. And the way it was illustrated to me uh, was I, I heard somebody once ask the question, when's the best time to plant a sh- shade tree 20 years ago? When's the second best time today? Exactly. And that's... For me, that sort of brought home how to do it. So Allison, why is, you're, you're the CPA here, why is, uh, you know, most people think about taxes and that kind of stuff and just, you know, get ill. Why, why, should, <laughs> why, why should that be something young professionals uh, focus on?
2: That's a really good question, and it plays into everything that everybody's just been saying is that taxes are pretty much the biggest expense for anyone. It's not your housing, I promise. It's your taxes. So if you're starting out, uh, you know, in your 20s, 30s, or even 40s, thank you, Chloe, for that generous thought that people in their 40s are young professionals that makes me a young professional Uh, taxes being your biggest expense if you can cut that down early on then that time horizon that you have to invest and uh, grow your money grow your wealth over time then that base just increases so whether that's if you're a c-level employee and you're getting uh, stock options things like that from your company or you're starting a business and you want to know the best way to structure that from a tax perspective getting those good answers early on just sets you up for Success going forward.
1: And I want to note something. So I I serve on a lot of boards for charities and I'm looking at the 401ks or the 403bs where you get to save money in a retirement account. And many of them will match the, the contributions, but I have found that most employees, particularly young employees, don't take advantage of that. And when we're looking at tax savings, given the new tax laws, it seems to me that there aren't a whole lot of tax savings you can do as a young person Are you finding, um, Allison, that, that young people are taking advantage of 401Ks or that is a good vehicle or what?
2: I find some people do and some people don't. Firstly, it's a cash flow issue and really pretty much anything that anybody here in this room is doing all comes back to cash flow. So for some folks that are first starting out, they really don't have the funds to be investing. Uh, I'll be straight up honest that, you know, if if someone comes to me and they have a lot of issues, probably one of the first issues I would say, especially if they have children is, do you have an estate plan in place? Have you gone to see an estate attorney? You know, spend a few thousand dollars on that before you put that in your 401k. Because if you croak tomorrow, you want to make sure that your kid's. Don't go somewhere that the state has decided. So there's kind of you know a hierarchy of financial planning, which Chloe and Cherish can talk a lot more about. Uh, but back to your question, Craig, about whether people are putting money in these 401ks. I, m- most of my clients, um, and sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, because if folks don't have the funds, generally they're they're not coming to me as clients. But um, so I guess that's really more confirmation bias. But most of them. <clears throat> are putting into their 401ks but probably a lot of them are only doing it up to the point they get that employer match because that is free money and that is definitely a good thing Um, i think with a lot of folks and i think chloe can talk more about this it's a question of do they want to put it in a regular 401k or a roth 401k i see the roth iras being very very popular with young young people they seem to they seem to be all over that and with tax rates as low as they are these days that's really not a bad idea so the, the long answer, <laughs> the short answer to that long answer is really, it, it depends.
0: So um, Allison mentioned something about cash flow. And Chloe, I, I know we we asked you to give us some thoughts before we started. And number one for you is cash flow. So tell our listeners a little bit how you approach that. You know, they, they get their income, a paycheck. If they're lucky, they may get money from a trust yeah. or other... Uh, regular distributions maybe a family business yeah, how trust do you, me most don't <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how does one uh, who, who uh, how does how do you go about sort of helping people deal with their cash flow
3: definitely the first step is really just having awareness of, of what's coming in and what's going out uh, when I work with a lot of a lot of my clients they have no clue how much they spend in any given month uh, and, and where that money's really going so so that's one of the first things I do with them is help them come up with a, a, a budget um, and figure out, okay, what, what's really going out.
1: Are there internet tools or things that can help us? Because I've got kids in their 20s and knowing where their money goes is shocking that they know nothing. Yes. So, so are there tools that you could at least direct yeah. kids to, kids, young adults to start off with to get a better awareness?
3: Yes, there, there's a, a lot of online tools. Um, some of the most popular ones are, are Mint, Um, mint.com and then also you need a budget as a good budgeting tool uh, that some of my clients use as well Uh, but yeah there's a lot of a lot of tools some people like to just use good old excel and you know download transactions and and kind of categorize and see where things are going so
0: so tell i'm not not that we're advocating anything in particular but tell our listeners a little bit about how those programs work i i use mint i've tried to get my my sons to use it And I find it very helpful because if you link up, and what you do is you go in, you link your accounts, you link your investments, and it will regularly report to you what's going on, and you can start to get a sense of, as you say, where things are going, what your bills are, how your investments are hopefully increasing over time.
3: Yes, Mint Mint is a great tool to basically just upload all of your transactions um, based off of your, your bank accounts and link everything together. And so you can then categorize your transactions and, and kind of see where things are going in different categories. You can set budgets for yourself and receive alerts if you go over your, you know, you like your eating out budget as an example. Um, so it's a great tool to kind of see where you are based on you know, and, and compare that to where you want to be you know, in different categories.
1: My daughter found out that she was spending 20% of her social budget on coffee. I'm not joking. It was a shocking number to her. It didn't shock me. Cherish, tell me, if someone came to you and we're talking about estate planning, what's the first kind of tool they should look at? What's the most important thing? And let's talk about a young person who doesn't have children versus a young person perhaps who's married or does have children.
4: Okay. So um, typically, and this is what I recommend to parents who have children going off to college, um, so, part of the reason why I say you should have your parents, if, if, if they're in college, set up or, you know, help you pay for an advanced care directive, um, once you turn 18, um, your parents don't have access to your medical records, so if you're at the hospital and um, you know, you need your parents to make your medical decisions for you or somebody else that you trust, you need to have an advanced care directive.
1: And let's be clear on this because I've seen a lot on, on, on different websites. Is there a difference between like a medical authorization or a release and an advanced directive?
4: Um, yes. So there's a HIPAA release which allows you to get medical records. So if your parents, let's say you went to UGA um, and you're off to college and they needed to get your medical records because they need to transfer you to a hospital, your parents would be allowed to get your medical records at the UGA Medical Center. Um, and then um, Advanced care dir- uh, Directive also allows you to also um, change um, to nominate someone to make your health care decisions so you know god forbid you know your student um, your child uh, gets into a car accident and your parents need to make medical decisions for you um, they can they'll have the authorization to do that as well too
0: and is that different from a lot of folks come to us and say in in a different context well i've got power of attorney
4: Mm -hmm. yes so then there's also the financial power of attorney so um you know college student, um, you know, Michael, he goes to college and he opens up his bank account, but parents need to know, okay, Michael is running his rent and all of his expenses through the bank account, but parents don't know what needs to be paid for. So, you know, if Michael got into a car accident um, and they needed to pay his rent and his parents didn't know what his rent the bank is not going to allow the parents to get access that in for that information.
1: And, and by the way, on the new uh, rules regarding access to social media or access to bank accounts, people ignore and always say, I accept the, the terms of agreement. Within the privacy rules, you can give access or limited access or conditional access to somebody for those types of situations, but you have to choose it.
0: Okay. Yes, and yes. And while we're talking, Cherish, about um, situations involving young people, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the issues that arise with digital access after someone passes. This is, my sense, is a brave new world, and you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and the Instagrams of the world are trying to figure out how to deal with it, and you, as a planner, are trying to figure out how to deal with it.
4: Well, there's a new power of attorney um, in in Georgia that was implemented about two years ago and so that allows for digital access. Um, However, there is a difference um, in in, in trying to reach Google and get those accounts. Um, You know, there's a practical. So you know, you've got the law then you've got the practical matters and actually accessing that information. But it does help to have, you know, digital access and uh, authorization for people to actually access your accounts so also like your bank accounts um you know going online at uh, your social media profiles um and then you know if somebody is you know a gamer and they've accumulated all of these um i think they're coins or money but there's an actual value for you know, playing these video games, that actually has an estate value. There's there's a value. There's
1: value fun. to playing, I'm sorry, what?
4: Yes, yes. <laughs> Surprisingly, yes. And so um, there is a certain amount of value and you know, you have to decide who you want to pass that on to. You wouldn't think that, but now, you know, YouTube, um, you know, they have these arenas now with YouTube gamers and thousands and thousands of people will watch them. And so just as the digital, I mean, as society's changing and we're having more digital access, to um, things, then you know, you've got to think about and plan for those things as well, too.
0: So um, Cherish uh, was referring to things that are digital. It made me think of cryptocurrencies. Um, Alison, any, any thoughts on how that plays into the tax work you do and whatever advice you give folks about that?
1: I think what he's saying is will you get caught
2: (laughs) yes you will and that's that's fairly recent Um, not all countries are approaching this the same way but in the US uh, the IRS has said that uh, digital currencies are treated like a lot of other uh, capital assets so if you um, you know buy Bitcoin at 100 U.S. dollars, and Bitcoin then later sells for 1,000 U.S. dollars, uh, and you sell one Bitcoin, you have a $900 capital gain, uh, and it's short-term, long-term, depending on how long you held the, the coin, uh, and that the IRS is expecting to see that, and they have reports from some of these major traders, so that, uh, or the... the uh, cryptocurrency platforms so they're they're seeing who has ownership
1: do they get 10 1099s like a normal sale or something else
2: I don't believe they're they're necessarily across the board getting those, but there are some uh, platforms out there that are starting to issue those, um, and they're starting to issue them in um, ways that are somewhat friendly to be able to be reported on your tax return. Um, and probably the last year or so, maybe before that, if you were getting any kind of reporting, it's probably more like a download of transactions. Um, I, I got a few of those from clients this past year, and you know, they're micro transactions basically. So you you it's almost like day- trading um you know there may be um something to go along with your return that has you know hundreds of pages of transactions and you basically get to gain or loss that's you know 200 us dollars so uh but the irs is is figuring it out um and they're like yeah yeah if if your name's on this list at some point we're expecting to see some transactions you're not holding this indefinitely we know you're going to sell it so um but you know i am finding for most of my clients that hold uh, digital currencies the actual impact to their tax returns is generally pretty nominal um i think that would certainly change if you had bitcoin that's you know five years old or something like that but
0: you're listening to wealth matters the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth we are your hosts, Robert Port and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslewitz Frankel. We are talking with Chloe Moore, CFP, principal and CEO of Financial Staples, Cherish Dela Cruz, attorney and partner with Dela Cruz Law LLC, and Allison McLeod, CPA, CFP at Atlanta Tax. And we are talking today about financial and estate planning for young adults. Now,
1: Cherish, I'm going to ask you the second question. So first, you said, what happens when your kid goes to college? And you said, let's make sure that they're protected for both access to their money, if there's a problem, and for medical. Now, let's shoot ahead a little, and you're thinking about getting married. And I mean, you personally, a a young adult is thinking about getting married. Are there different considerations?
4: Yes, there are different considerations. So um, you want to do the planning For your spouse and so definitely you want to have at least a wills based plan which means that you're um, creating a will and leaving you know if you if you wish um, everything to your your spouse Um, some people they will you know forget to update their beneficiary designations um, for their spouse and so they'll forget to put their wife's name so they'll have a 401k um, and, you know, to check it regularly. So that, that's something that you definitely have to do. I've seen situations in my practice where they think that they've put their, um, their spouse's name on the beneficiary, like their life insurance, um, their um, uh, 401K, and they haven't. Or, you know, that provider changed um, uh, third-party services and th- it, it defaulted back to the estate. One of the reasons why you want to do that is because um, there's a priority of creditors that get paid after somebody passes away. And so if there's a lot of debt, you have to kind of think about that, but that's more on what Chloe would... Yeah.
0: Well, we would hope young people don't experience this, but what we often see in our practice is a failure to change a beneficiary designation. And then the ex-spouse dies, and he's never he or she's never changed the beneficiary right. designation so that the ex-spouse gets sometimes hundreds of thousands or more dollars. Chloe, so, let,
1: let, let's talk about the debt, because I think it's, it's clear. We are not in the old society where your husband or your spouse's debt or your parent's debt are yours. So if you're young and you're building up debt, let's say, oh, for example, college education debt. If you leave money in your estate, it's going to go to pay off that debt, whereas if you use a beneficiary designation of whatever the asset is, life insurance, it won't. So when you're talking to young people, what do you tell them about management of debt?
3: Yes, for young professionals, I think some of the, the most common forms of debt um, are student loans, and that, that's something that you know, has a big, a big impact on, on their ability to save um, for their future and so I help a lot of clients with student loans and, um, and just managing that debt. I know with federal, with federal student loans, um, those are forgiven at your debt. Um, if you have private student loans, then, then yes, that affects your state. And the
1: reason I ask the question, we see a lot of TV commercials about how you can consolidate the debt and get a lower number. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of our listeners don't realize you're taking it out of the federal rubric and the protections, and you're now getting a private loan. Yes. And, and so you're changing all the protections. I'm not sure people realize that.
3: Yeah. Yes. That's something that people definitely make mistakes on when it comes to consolidating uh, student loans or um, or refinancing student loans. So um, so that's something that I I work with clients on as well to just look at the situation. What what type of employment do they have? Are they at a nonprofit or working for a nonprofit? Um, Are there opportunities for forgiveness? Um, And then if not, you know, what can we do? What's the best option for paying down down that debt?
0: Let's, let's circle back a little bit to uh, newly married folks. Um, Chloe, how do you suggest, and there's no singular way to do this, but how do you suggest that they merge their finances or deal with their finances going forward?
3: Yes, I, for most people, I think the, e- the easiest way is to have a joint account to cover the household expenses and then each spouse have a separate account to cover some of their personal expenses. And then maybe just have on the joint side, if they have an agreement to say, if we spend more than X amount of dollars, then we'll consult with each other about about that expense um, for the household.
1: Cherish on, on that issue, uh, families, people that get married um, come from different places in their lives. So they may come from a wealthier family, or they may have the op, they may have the opportunity, or something to inherit wealth. I see a lot of young people going ahead and merging their assets, kind of putting it in the same bucket, whether it be an investment account, but most often buying a house together using what I would refer to as inheritance or family money and without making any distinctions. Is that a good idea?
4: No, um, Mm -hmm. it it isn't a good idea. And so, you know, sometimes when you have uh, wealthier families, they will put their um, children's assets in trust for them and then what i have seen from my own practice is they will take assets from that trust and they will um, put it in you know their, their joint bank account so once it comes from protected money then to um, mixed money let's just think of it that way and then you know what happens if somebody gets divorced um, you know you, you know you're, you're, you're young, you're married now but you know 10, 15 years from now you, you, you know you're contemplating divorce.
1: And by the way, the divorce rates are interesting. for young people it's going down. It's below 40 percent. but for people over the age of 50 whose children are going to college, it's going up. Mm. So the, the the blended divorce rate right, right now is still around 50 percent.
4: And so you have to think about that. You never wanna mix that money um, and um, those assets together. Um, So I always recommend um, that to my clients. And then I also think even though, you know, they might be recently married, have young children, you know, you have to think down the line for re- um, adding what we would call uh, remarriage protections. So, you know, God forbid, you know, you pass away and then your um, surviving, your spouse, who's, you know, the survivor of the relationship, wants to get remarried. How do you protect your children and make sure that the assets that you have either worked really hard for or your parents have really worked hard for really go to those children um so making sure that you have provisions in the trust that address that um and then also you know just making sure that um you know if you do get remarried later on that you do change your beneficiary designations
0: and allison we're, we're talking a little bit about marriage let's let's and i'm by no means any sort of tax person but i i understand there's something called uh married filing separately versus a joint filing can you maybe give a brief overview as to when that would apply and why uh, folks would would think about either option
1: and and does that exist now with the new tax act because i can't remember the answer to that
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, If I could change anything about tax law, well, I change a lot of things. Uh, But one thing I would definitely get rid of is this sort of antiquated idea that we should combine tax situations with each other when we get married. They, it's it's hard enough to combine financial situations. I know Chloe can speak to that. It's hard enough to combine legal situations. I know Cherish can speak to that. Um, but you know, I have a number of clients who are married and um, have had issues combining their financial situation. But then I tell them, oh well, unless you want a really bad tax answer, you're gonna need to combine your financial situations simply to file tax returns together. That's very problematic, especially when one spouse has. A a business and the other one doesn't and withholdings and estimated tax payments and all that get very confusing on the other hand I have a number of clients who live together have lived together for a long time um, in a, a partnership and are not married and so they don't have the opportunity to file jointly which um, a lot of times can hurt them um, but a lot of times can present opportunities again if one person's a business owner one's not maybe they can uh, one can employ the other and shift some income around to uh, push income to someone in a lower tax bracket. It's really, it's really a frustrating situation for a lot of folks because just these days, just because you're married doesn't mean that you share a financial situation and because you're unmarried doesn't mean you
1: don't. And let, let, let's follow up on that. Statistically, people are getting married later. We have a lot of same-sex or same-gender marriages, but we also find a lot of people living together in some combination where they're not married and 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 how does one think about tax planning when you're not married
2: well i'll give you one example um i have a a couple of clients they've lived together for a number of years um they they're both men and they've been realized that oh marriage is now on the table do we want this or not and so they're still exploring that um but um in the meantime they've got a a piece of property that that they've owned and lived in for a number of years um and there is if and I'm sure probably everybody in this room is familiar, maybe our listeners are not, with the so-called 121 gain exclusion, which is your best friend in tax. And it says if you sell your house and uh, you have a gain on your house sale, as long as you meet certain requirements, you can exclude up to $250,000 of gain uh, from being taxed. That jumps to $500,000 if you're married. So, you know, for them, I said, okay, you know, I, I would love for you guys to get married if that's what you want but you need to talk to me first so we can plan for your house sale. You know, I don't want them to uh, sell first and then get married later and then, you know, kind of get hosed there on the the tax break. So that would just be one example.
1: Well, we answered that question kind of from the planning perspective. You are an unmarried couple and you're living together for a while. You may not yet have decided for it to be a permanent relationship. Maybe you have. What difference is there for planning for an unmarried couple versus a married couple?
3: Yes, it I, I do have also some clients that that have been in long-term relationships and are not married and um, it, it's really a matter of with from a cash flow perspective figuring out you know what your joint goals are um, as a household and, and figuring out if you how much you want to combine some people do set up joint accounts you know just as if they were married um, just to cover just the household expenses um, and things for the the household and then keep everything else separate um, and some people just keep things completely separate uh, but but it really just depends on you know the relationship and and their specific
0: goals cherish let me let's circle back to something you mentioned before which i didn't want to pass which was beneficiary designations and it occurs to me that a lot of young couples with young children they get the form from the bank the brokerage firm whatever it is and they say you know who's your beneficiary oh we'll list you know junior who is you know seven years (laughs) old too. yes uh is that a good idea
4: no. So but, but often
0: that's the best money manager in the family. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Perhaps. Um, so, no. And so there's this misconception out there that if you list a minor, your, your child, um, that they're able to get that money. Um, and, and they're not. So, you know, minors should never be listed on beneficiary designations.
0: So what what happens if, you know, the the brokerage firm, the life insurance company, they pay the money to whose... Who's listed, what what happens then?
4: So the parents or the surviving um, parent will have
0: to um,
4: what we call a conservatorship. So we have to, as their attorney, I would have to petition the court, ask for the, um, the court to set up a conservatorship, which means basically you're asking the court to manage the finances, um, uh, pick someone to manage the finances. Uh, conservatorships um, uh, cost a lot of money, um, in the thousands of dollars. And um, so let's just say you had a small estate. It doesn't make sense for that to do that. And also the court is choosing who that conservator is. And they also require you, uh, the person who's going to be the conservator, the person who's going to take care of the money for the child, to um, be issued a <coughs> bond, which is basically insurance policy so that that person won't run off with the money. It takes months. It can be complicated and time-consuming so you never ever ever want to list a minor as a beneficiary i've seen it i've seen that happen. yeah and 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 it's just this misconception out there so if there's one takeaway today do not list a minor (laughs) as a beneficiary
1: (laughs) Uh, other than my children (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we're listening today to wealth matters the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth we are your hosts today, Robert Port and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaswood Frankel. We're talking today with Chloe Moore with Financial Staples, Cherish de la Cruz with the La Cruz Law, and Allison McLeod with Atlanta Tax. And we're talking about financial and estate planning for young adults. Let's follow up a little on on for children um, when you talk about minors being being beneficiaries. I do want to highlight that with a conservatorship, it's over at 18 so if you have a 17 year old child and you listed them even if there's a conservatorship they get access to money right away are there ways to use beneficiary designations where the money will politely be given out at different times whether it be a trust or something else is that possible as a designation
4: yes so you can name a trust as a um, part of the beneficiary designation um, as, you know, children are getting older, some some children are not responsible at 18. And so if you start thinking about the parents' estate and how many assets, let's just say you had a couple of million dollars, do you really want um, Junior to get that money? Um, I personally, I have three children, I wouldn't want that because I know that they would spend it on a brand new Lamborghini or something else. And so you can structure it in a trust so that It's either stage, you can give it to them um, during certain conditions, if you graduate from college, if you go to graduate school, whatever provisions you want, you can add that
2: to the trust.
1: Allison, I have a kind of an odd question for you. Go for it. I get odd
2: questions all day long. Let's
1: shift gears. So so one of the things that young people are going to be doing when they don't have children is they're going to be starting businesses. Absolutely. And they're going to be taking probably greater financial risk, and that's a good time to do it. Are there any kind of tax savings or or things that uh, young people can use under the new tax act that might be something we haven't thought of?
2: Well, I have to think about under the new tax laws, but I I can tell you a few things. One thing that I recommend anyone starting a business, whether they're starting from scratch or whether they're buying a business, is uh, first make sure they have a very good corporate attorney. Uh, They need to look over any and all documents help generate documents that sort of thing also make sure you're starting out with a good accountant someone who will keep your financials for you work with you on understanding those if business is not necessarily your background uh both of those are definitely worth the money so that's one of the the best things i can offer Um, on the tax side definitely make sure you structure your business um, in a tax efficient way to begin with sometimes it's kind of hard to go from one tax entity to another Uh, and you may find later down the road that uh, the tax structure you thought was great because you know everybody's doing it didn't help you at all because your situation is unique to you and you needed something tailored for you
1: and and i want to underscore something you said when you talked about the corporate attorney what you're talking about is creditor protection. What you don't want to do is all of your personal assets to be lost because the business doesn't quite go the way you wanted.
2: Yeah, that's certainly one one of the, the benefits and probably one of the bigger benefits of working with a corporate attorney. I think another one, um, and I see this all the time, is the ownership problems. Uh, when you just, when you start a business or buy a business and you're the only owner, you don't think about that but when you say oh well I want my mom to be involved I want my brother to be involved I want my two best friends from college to be involved you will have problems and working with a corporate attorney from the onset they're going to ask you all the exit related questions that you didn't even think about you know what happens if another business partner becomes incapacitated or something like that like what are you going to do You would not have even thought to ask these things to yourself. Um, So good fences make good neighbors. Your operating agreement will be structured in a way that um, hopefully everybody walks away from the table a little bit unhappy. um, And that ultimately long term will make everybody, hopefully will help make everybody happy. Or you may even realize that the person sitting across from you that you thought you were about to start a business with it's not going to work. And you know on the front end, and that is money well, well spent.
0: Right. And and one, one thing that we realize as attorneys is that the type of documents you're talking about, an operating agreement, a partnership agreement, a shareholder's agreement, they can provide a roadmap yes. for disentangling people. And many times, just like marriage, folks get into business, everything's going to be great, 50-50, whatever it is. Uh, and things don't often work out well. Uh, and then when there's no documents, we as attorneys are left with debates about what the intent was and what happened and how right. come you got more than me. You're trying to unscramble an stuff. egg. That's right. right. So, Chloe, let, let me change the topic just a little bit. Well, a lot, maybe. Um, one of the things, one of the financial issues that, that, again, people sort of think of and many people say yuck is insurance. Talk about what you like to see or recommend for clients vis-a-vis the range of insurance.
3: Yes, um, so I'd say the, the most important thing to start with is um, I'd say the life and health and disability. Uh, for young for young clients who are, are married or have kids, um, there's definitely an insurance need there for life insurance uh, to take care of their families. Uh, for young professionals, the, the biggest asset that you have is your ability to earn income. And, and so a lot of people forget about disability insurance, especially when you're a business owner. Um, that's something that a lot of people just forget um, to, to insure themselves uh, for their ability to earn income if something were to happen to them um, through an accident or an illness.
0: Um, and, so and my recollection is the statistics are that you're more likely to be disabled and unable to work than, than actually pass away. Correct.
3: Correct. Yeah, so that's that's something that um, even if your employer provides uh, disability insurance in some cases depending on your your income level and, and your your type the type of work that you do uh, it's, it's definitely good to have supplemental coverage as well
1: and, and Allison explained a difference to our listeners there's a difference between for taxes for employer provided um, disability insurance versus buying it on your own that I, that I think might be significant
2: yes and I've, I've certainly seen this play out on the the inside of things um, unpleasantly so um, you know if you if you have life insurance uh, when that's paid out generally the recipients aren't taxed on that Um, disability insurance can play out Two different ways. You you may be taxed on the payments you receive um, uh, in your disability, or you may not, and that depends on whether the premiums were deducted on the front end. So anything that's paid for by your employer, they're going to deduct. is just a fringe benefit to you. So you know you may not even think about it. And this goes to Chloe's point of, of pursuing supplemental insurance is. You know, maybe it was so cheap for, for your employer to cover you under their disability policy, and that's great. At least you have something. But when those payments come to you, they'll be taxable. Whereas if you have a supplemental policy as an employee or just your own uh, long-term disability policy as a business owner, uh, as long as you don't deduct those payments on the front <laughs> end, which I would never advise anybody to do, um, then, then in the payout, then those, those payments aren't taxed to you. And that's, that's huge. It's definitely worth paying the tax on the premiums now. Um, in case you ever want that tax-free money later because you you will need it. You will go through it quickly. You don't want to be paying any more tax than you have to in that situation.
1: So we are nearing the end of our show, so this is the fun part for me. So I'm going to ask each of you, you've got about 30 seconds, you have a captive 27-year-old who is thinking about getting married but has not yet gotten married. You've got 30 seconds to give them advice. Cherish, what's your advice?
4: Definitely keep your assets separate um, if you can. Have an advanced health care directive and a will. Um, spelling out your wishes and then
3: um, also have a financial power of attorney.
1: Chloe, what's your advice?
3: Uh, my advice would be communicate, communicate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially when it comes to, to financial matters and relationship matters. Uh, that, I think that's there's a lot of conflict with, with financial
1: Okay, when you say communicate difference. and communicate, uh, tell us how one actually does that.
3: <laughs> uh, well, for, for my clients who are married, I, I encourage money dates and, and just to talk about uh, just, you know, your that household. That sounds romantic. <laughs> uh,
1: money date is, oh gosh, we
0: don't have any money.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: but, but, Pre- preferably
0: over wine. That's, that's disgusting. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's always good to, to have an understanding of, of your joint goals, your values, um, what you're spending. and and just making sure that the household is running smoothly from a financial
1: perspective. Okay, Allison, we're talking about values now. What is your advice?
2: Uh, That one's really easy. Uh, I'll I'll talk to a new client who is recently widowed, (laughs) widowered, if that's a word, um, or just for whatever reason is now responsible for taking care of their tax situation and they've not done that in the past. And it can be very confusing and overwhelming, especially in light of other things they may be going through. So my advice to folks who are getting married or are married. Uh, To the extent that it it works for your relationship, try to approach your tax situation as partners. You know, it's okay to delegate pieces of your tax situation, but come together and really understand, again, it is the biggest financial hit to your household. It's the biggest hit to your long-term wealth. So, you know, don't don't abdicate to one partner your entire tax situation.
1: So my advice um, to our listeners is when you start thinking and you start getting your first job, Call professionals to give you advice. Amen. So, so if somebody wanted to call you, Allison, where would they, how would they get in touch with you?
2: That's easy. I'm at atlanta.tax.
1: And Chloe, how would they get in touch with you?
2: Yes, my
3: website is financialstaples.com, and all of my contact information is there.
1: Excellent. And Cherish?
3: My uh, website is
4: www.delacruz-law.com. Www.delacruz,
0: Well, thank you. As we're wrapping up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gasolitz-Frankel, please go to our website at gaslitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at A State Dispute and use our show's hashtag, Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Chloe Moore, CFP, Principal and CEO of Financial Staples, Cherish Dela Cruz, attorney and partner at Dela Cruz Law, LLC, and Allison McLeod, CPA and CFP at Atlanta Tax. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8 30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X.